Well, my kids are now 11 and 8 years old. Moses is 11, Zoe is 8, and that means we are right in the middle of the riddle phase. Has anyone lived through the riddle phase before? Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> they love learning new riddles from friends at school or sharing the latest joke that they heard on the playground. Among them, of course, are the latest and the greatest knock-knock jokes. Do we have any knock-knock joke fans here this morning? Okay. How about this one? Knock-knock. Who's Mikey. My key isn't working. Can you let me in? <laughs> knock, knock. Who's there? Abe. Abe. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Oh, no, no. Okay, one more, one more, one more. Knock, knock. Who's there? Deja vu. Knock, knock. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's my favorite one. Now, throughout the past few weeks, we've engaged the risen Jesus' words to seven churches of the ancient world with an eager expectation that his words to those churches would be a word to us as well. That Jesus' words to the church then would continue to lead and guide our church even today. We've heard the voice of Jesus calling to the church in Ephesus to be faithful in love. We've heard him call to the church in Smyrna to endure amidst suffering. To the church in Pergamum to be committed to the truth. The church in Thyatira to yearn for holiness. The church in Sardis to recognize reality. And that church in Philadelphia last week to engage the opportunity before them. Remember? Before you I have set an open door. This morning, as we conclude our series, we turn our attention to a church in Laodicea. Laodicea was a 2,000-year-old city, but had been recently rebuilt and renovated. It sat on the banks of the Lycus River. It was connected by road to other commercial centers. But Laodicea was likely the most prosperous of them all. It had become a center for banking, where Cicero stashed all of his cash. And he would also hold court there deciding matters before the people. Like others, Laodicea was made prosperous by the clothing industry. When an earthquake decimated the town in 60 AD, they were so wealthy from the garment industry, they turned down a government bailout from Rome. They rebuilt the city on their own. Can you imagine turning down a government bailout today? The Jewish residents of Laodicea were so wealthy, they actually paid their synagogue dues to the temple in Jerusalem with bags of gold, like you do when you run out of checks, right? I'm all out of checks. Do you take gold? In addition, per, like Pergamum, uh, Laodicea was a center of healing. They had developed this special eye salve that would bring healing to one's, to one's sight. Perhaps we could put it this way. Uh, Laodicea had the riches of the Hamptons, the political power of Washington, D.C., the fashion sense of Paris, and the medical breakthrough of Johns Hopkins. But listen to the words Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. 
Notice that word amen. It should signal us to the significant theological truth in the words that follow. Amen is is a reference to to truth. Um, When we pray and say amen, it means, Lord, let it be so. I agree with what's been said. And so when Jesus says, I'm the amen, he's saying, listen up, pay attention. This is important. But it's also an indication of the final letter. Like when we pray prayers at the end, we say amen. This amen is the conclusion of Jesus' words to the seven churches, the last one he writes. So Jesus is the amen. Jesus is the last word. And there are a great deal of implications here if we just pause for a moment and are reminded that Jesus is the last word. Because if Jesus is the last word, then disease does not have the last word. If Jesus is the last word, then our difficulties and our dilemmas do not have the last word. If Jesus is the last word, then the challenges of the world around us do not have the last word. Amen? Amen. Friends, Jesus is the last word. And he starts by reminding the church in Laodicea that he is the last word. It's a kind of care and comfort. But notice, there is no commendation like there is to other churches in other cities. Jesus says, I see that you do this well, but not to Laodicea. There is no commendation, only critique. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were one or the other. Now, in our culture, references to temperature carry a very different meaning. Um, If we have a difficult situation, we refer to it as a hot potato, right? The last time we took one out of the oven, we know exactly why. If we're in trouble, we refer to it as being in the hot seat. Sometimes we see someone who we think of as a hot mess, but we're not going to point any fingers in the sanctuary, okay? (laughs) On the other hand, if someone is distant and unfriendly, we say they're giving us the cold shoulder, right? Or for you foreigner fans, we might sing, they're as cold as ice. No? No foreigner fans? (laughs) Only the guys in the band like that one. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. I thought that would have been better. If someone's nervous, we say they have cold feet, like a wedding I officiated Friday night, but that's another story for another sermon. (laughs) If someone's frustrated, we tell them to cool their jets, right? Take a chill pill, like I had to do in our last Little League game of the season when the umpire couldn't see the strike zone to save his life. (laughs) Cool your jets, Coach Curtis. Now, Christianese language sometimes co-ops these kind of phrases. Uh, We can talk about someone's faith It's gone cold, right? Or someone who's on fire for the Lord. But that's not what Jesus is referring to when he talks to the Laodiceans about being either hot or cold. Those very different cultural contexts. You see, in Laodicea, the city's water supply came not from the nearby Lycus River, but instead from two distinct and different natural springs. A few miles in opposite directions were both hot springs and cold springs. The hot springs were like a a warm bath you'd sit in after a long day of yard work. The cold springs were like a cold glass of water after you put away the lawnmower. Some ancient writers say these two sources vacillated the temperature of the town's water supply throughout the day. It's like those lyrics. Maybe some of us have heard these and, and, and not foreigner. Let me try Uh, you're hot, then you're cold, you're yes, then you're no, you're in, then you're out, you're up, then you're down. Anybody? No? Okay, thank you. I see Trisha, 
And thank you. Okay, so two. Um, that's the first and last time I quote Katy Perry in a sermon. Never again. Never again. So in essence, this vacillation from these two different springs, hot and then cold, made their water useless. It's not warm enough to soak in. It's not cold enough to be refreshing. And so, and so, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. We know how terrible this is. When we reach for a can that used to be cold from the fridge, but it's been sitting on the counter too long, we're surprised that it's lukewarm so soon. And yet the original wording isn't just like spitting out the contents of that can. It's more like, how do I say this in church? It's more like the effects of nausea. Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out. Jesus' language here is strong to Laodicea. He says, Laodicea, you make me sick. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and I don't need a thing. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness. And a salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Notice, Jesus takes all of the signs and the symbols of their prosperity and their pride, and Jesus turns them around. You're not rich in my eyes. You're not well-dressed in my eyes. Take some salve so you can see yourself clearly. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Turn around, change your mind, think differently. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. You see, there's the knock-knock, but there's no joke. In the classic movie, The Princess Bride, uh, there's one character who keeps on repeating the word inconceivable. And if you've seen the movie, you can hear it now in your head, and that's probably all you'll hear for the rest of the sermon. (laughs) And at long last, Inigo Montoya turns to him and says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And in a way, I think a similar thing happens when we come to Revelation 3, verse 20. We've probably heard it many times before, especially when we think of sharing the gospel with someone who's never heard it, who's never received the good news of God's love. And so we think of this verse, we think of this passage, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. It's this beautiful image of Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. It's been immortalized in a number of various paintings. I have a couple for us here. There's Jesus standing on the door and knocking. I think we've got a second one. What I love about these paintings is in none of them is there a handle on the outside of the door. The door has to be opened from within. And this reference, Revelation 3.20, is even printed on In-N-Out Burger wrappers. Have you seen this? Yes. Why do you think we ordered In-N-Out for lunch this afternoon? (laughs) But like Inigo Montoya says, I'm not sure it means what we think it means. Let me explain. Jesus stands at the door and knocks, not at an individual's heart. He knocks at the door of a community. 
Now, it's true, of course, that Jesus comes into our lives and leads and guides us as individuals. But most of the time throughout the New Testament, when it talks about Jesus coming in and being with us, it's not only as an individual, it's as a community of faith. It's as a gathered people who are committed to doing life together. Here, Jesus is addressing not individuals, but the whole church of Laodicea. The whole church of Laodicea who were so content with all their cash, who were so sure of all of the things that they had earned and achieved. They didn't need a government bailout, and they didn't need God's grace either. What's more, when Jesus is knocking in Revelation 3.20, he is not knocking to be let into the heart of someone who isn't yet a Christian. Notice this. Jesus is knocking on the door of a church. Jesus is knocking on the door of people who say that they have given him their lives. The church in Philadelphia had an open door to go out into the world. The church of Laodicea has slammed theirs shut, excluding the very one they claim as Savior. You see, their faith is sentimental. It's skin deep. They are smug and self-satisfied. They are sure they've got it all figured out. When church happens, but Jesus isn't invited, then scripture becomes someone's old, outdated advice instead of God's clear and careful instruction. When church happens, but Jesus isn't invited, worship becomes about the songs that we like instead of nurturing a spirit that God loves. When church happens, but Jesus isn't invited, prayer becomes a wish list of things that we want, instead of an opportunity to commune with God, who knows all the days of our lives already. See, in Laodicea, church was still happening. They were still there, but Jesus was locked out. Jesus wasn't invited. Jesus was standing at the door and knocking, the church that they were gathered in his name, but, but he wasn't there. See, because of his great love, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Notice what it says right before he's standing at the door and knocking. Jesus says he is ready to rebuke them and to discipline them. Not exactly our favorite topic, is it? Church father Jerome once put it this way. He said, the greatest anger of God is when God withdraws his anger from us. Like when you were a kid and you did something so bad that your parents were completely speechless and they did not know how to discipline you. The greatest anger of God is when he withdraws his anger, but here Jesus is not angry. He stands with love. He knocks with love. Because he loves us, he wants to discipline us. But Jesus has no handle. The door only opens from the inside. Here I am, he says. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like us, the ancient world had three meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
Breakfast was a light meal. Lunch was eaten quickly on a short break from work, usually in the town square. But supper was when everyone gathered around the table. Supper was when everyone gathered around the table, slowly savoring each bite. And they would enjoy one another's company long into the evening. You may be familiar with the original language of that verse, which is, I will come in and sup with that person and they with me. In other words, I will come in and I will eat dinner. I will take supper. I will be slow and savor. We will enjoy one another's company long into the evening. And that's the invitation for us this morning. That's the invitation to those of us who've never made a commitment to this Jesus. But also to those of us who have opened the door and in some ways are living a life of faith without Jesus invited. There are those of us perhaps recognize ways that we vacillate like the water temperature in Laodicea. We're hot, then we're cold. You're yes, then we're no. Invitation to us this morning is to again open the door to the one who knocks because the only handle is on the inside. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaves in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking about in such a way that hurts abominably. And it doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is God up to? The explanation is that God is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But God is building a palace. And he intends to come and to live in it himself. Friends, it's at this table that we pause to remember the good news of this Jesus. Who has come down from the heights of heaven that he might sup with us. That he might sit with us that we might be slow, and that we might savor his presence. That we might live a kind of life where our faith is not confined to church on a Sunday morning for an hour at a time, but that routinely, daily, we would demonstrate our dependence upon him. We would invite him in to sup with us, to sit with us, to be slow and to savor our time in his presence and his power.